Welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. I can honestly say that every one of my guests has highlighted something new about the condition, about life and about what's important in it. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum, Kay, lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Her diagnosis came about in the wake of a terrible crisis and when it did, my family and I knew nothing about the condition. Now though, through my writing and campaigning, I know so much more about dementia. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life post-diagnosis. I know it's down to society, to all of us, to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. My guest today describes herself as a good Yorkshire girl and says, what you see is what you get. I last interviewed her in the dark days of December 2020, as people living with dementia in care homes became virtual prisoners. Their relatives only allowed to see them through windows. Looking back, it seems hardly possible that this is what it came to. Of course, most of those with dementia, who account for over 70% of care home residents, had no idea what was happening why their loved ones no longer came to see them, and they felt abandoned, alone, frightened. No one was more aware of this at the time than the chief executive of the Alzheimer's Society. Not only does Kate Lee regard her role with the charity as more than a job, saying that she couldn't bear to look back on the pandemic and its effect on the people she represents and think that she'd failed them, but she has personal experience of the devastating impact of COVID restrictions. Her mum, Barbara, was diagnosed with vascular dementia 18 years ago and now lives in a care home. So Kate and her family knew exactly what it meant not to be able to hug Barbara or hold her hand. And Kate Lee has quite wonderfully returned to be my guest for a second time. And two years after we first spoke on this podcast, we are hopefully, thankfully, through the worst of the virus. So I am, of course, keen to ask Kate about her mum and how she's coped during the long months of lockdowns and how her dad coped and her sister Liz. I know her parents were able somehow to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary in the spring of 2021, so I want to know how that went. I also want to ask Kate about her post-COVID vision for the Alzheimer's Society. The pandemic struck just days after she was appointed its head, so she scarcely had time to get her feet under her desk before the charity was in full crisis mode the emphasis on survival, minimising the inevitable drop in income and supporting traumatised colleagues as well as families living with dementia. Back in 2020, Kate told me that there had been more innovation in the past six months than the past six years and was clear that despite the terrible impact of COVID on those with dementia, the pandemic would have a profound positive effect on the charity sector, with issues marked too difficult somehow being tackled and sold with acceleration of the digitalization process, of more collaboration between charity CEOs and a reduction of the hierarchy between charities. Is all this good stuff beginning to happen, I wonder, or has some of it stalled? Who better to ask than the woman who has just been named Charity Leader of the Year? So, (laughs) Kate, huge congratulations on your accolade. Thank you. And a very warm welcome for the second time to Well I Know Now. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. What a privilege. No, not at all. Um, But first, how is your mum? She's okay. She is okay. I went up to see her last month because she's still up on the west coast of Scotland. So um, I went up to visit. Yeah, she declines very slowly. I mean, I think I've told you before that I think, uh, you know, certainly in lockdown, it was a big shock to us when we first visited Mm. and were able to go in and spend some time with her properly. You know, she's really lost her mobility and she'd stopped recognizing my dad, which was a big, you know, a big blow to him, particularly. I think I think he thought maybe that would happen more slowly. and, And with the COVID restrictions, that kind of almost felt to him like it happened very quickly. But I speak to her on a Wednesday. My sister goes to visit and she does a kind of FaceTime. Mm. And uh, my mom hasn't spoken for months and months and months, probably a good part of six or seven months. Mm. And um, strangely, while we were chatting, I just talked to her, rattle away to her. uh, And then she said, I don't know who that is. 
So everybody was really shocked at this first sentence. She's kind of strung together in in probably nearly a year. Uh, And then I thought it was quite strange that it was saying that she didn't know who I was. I thought, I don't know whether I should be happy that she's spoken or sad that that's, you know, she's so clear. I was just thinking that, yes, that's a really double-edged one, isn't it, when that is what she says. (laughs) But at the same time, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it, the way it suddenly comes for some reason that is beyond us. Absolutely. It was, it, was, uh, it was quite strange. So yeah, very much a double-edged sword. Mm, mm. But she had a fall earlier in the year and broke her hip. And we were really concerned that and she was taken into hospital. And we were really concerned that she might not be able to get back out. But um, yeah. they were excellent and worked very closely with her care home and did manage to get Good. her home and it it brought home to me I think just the difficulty I mean we've been doing lots of work at Alzheimer's Society around care home uh, just kind of standards of care in care homes but also social care and social care in people's own homes it was really interesting for me that because the care home staff know so well they were able to spot that she'd clearly done more damage falling Mm, than mm. than just the kind of bruise because they know her so well and they could tell from her behavior she was probably in pain Mm. and then made a decision to go and get an x-ray and I did it just brought back for me this kind of this whole issue around very short social care visits at home you know these 15 minute visits Mm. with completely different people visiting every time and Mm. never the same two members of staff visiting someone and it really brought it home to me because I was thinking actually it's really interesting if my mom had been at home she mm. probably wouldn't have had care workers that would have spotted she was in pain because they wouldn't have known her well enough yeah 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 and so I think for me that was quite a dramatic kind of moment of realization of just how bad the care system is for those that remain at home themselves particularly those that don't have close family Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of your great strengths, actually, because you do wear these two hats of of having a very personal experience. And there's nothing quite to beat it, no matter how much a researcher, a subject is, I think. Uh, That's certainly what I feel talking to people. And I know that, you know, I'm going to come on to that, actually, in a minute. I wanted to first ask you some something, you know, some more things about your mum and dad and your family and how they are. But I am going to come on to your big call for reform of the social care system, which is still so so broken and has been so badly shown up you know in the last two years I mean there are some very worrying signs coming out of the treasury aren't they about this cap on the social care not being we'll come to that don't worry um (laughs) gonna give you a chance but I am very interested you know this is the human element of it as to how your mum's care home obviously did do very very well by the way how did you celebrate the 60th wedding anniversary how did you manage to do that because you were still in we were beginning to come out of it, I think, but we were. And uh, strangely, the care home kind of opened up visiting a little bit more broadly around that time. Mm. They were able to get together. They got a, a letter from the Queen at the time, oh, which brilliant. they kind of had had framed, and and the care home had put up on the kind of main wall of the home, which was mm. absolutely lovely as well. And they were able to spend a bit of time together and have an afternoon tea. My mum wasn't. I think my dad would have liked to have tried to maybe take my mum out for an mm. hour or so maybe just for a drive in the car but that wasn't possible so just without breaking the kind of covid restrictions but he was able to mm. go in and have a little bit of a, an afternoon tea with her which was mm. lovely and particularly as they hadn't been able to celebrate their 80th together so uh, mm. it was mm. nice we were able to have a little bit of a celebration and we all kind of joined on facetime which was good mm. was your mum at all aware of anything the significance or not really mm. No, not really. Not really. I mean, it's really sweet. My mum and dad are a real testimony to a long-standing relationship because yeah. I I have since been able to visit um, just with my dad and my sister and the four of us spent an afternoon together and it makes me smile how my dad and mum still flirt with each other. My dad flirts with my mum terribly now after 60 years. He's still... That's amazing. And he, he, I know he's they're terrible with each other and uh, he can still kind of get a bit of a smile out of her. Mm. but now which is lovely because uh, it's not clear she necessarily knows who he is now which mm. she finds very difficult but mm. we all just plough on regardless I still write to her every Friday I think I've told you that before I write to her every Friday as though she doesn't have dementia and I just pour out the weekly rantings of her daughter about her grandchildren that is so sweet Kate I know you're a great writer of thank you cards I didn't know you wrote every week to your mum <laughs> Yeah, someone told me, a, a great friend, Neil Mapes. Oh, from Dementia Adventure. It's one of my first ever pieces. Yes. 
Yeah, he's a great friend and he gave me lots of hints and tips about things to think about with my mom. And two have been absolutely stuck with me. One is just write to her every week as though oh. she didn't have dementia. Why not? What What does it matter? You know, mm. whether she understands the letter. And I know that the care home read the letters out because the only thing is that the care home staff are very embroiled in my life. So when I arrive, they can ask me all sorts of things because they've read these letters out every <laughs> week about my Yes, it's another two-edged sword, yeah. Yeah. And that's so why I arrived. They're like, oh, how's your son? Did he yeah. pass his A level? <laughs> <laughs> like, ah. And um, the other thing that Neil gave me another tip, which I absolutely have loved and recommended it to so many people, is mm. that when my mum was starting to get ill, to wear the same scent. So I wear the same perfume every time I saw her. Right. That's such an evocative sense. Yeah, because I think there's lots of evidence that scent and smell is one of the very last things to go in the terms of memory. Yes, yes. So, um, and I spray my letters with the same scent every week. So I think if nothing else, maybe she has a little sniff of the envelope. And um, Oh, that is maybe lovely, Kate. I love that. Of me. And I wonder if writing the letter gives you as much, it's probably as much for you, isn't it? It must give, does it give you comfort writing it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it keeps, um, this is such a strange thing to say, but it keeps my relationship going with her as though she is my mum because she is still alive and I do have a mum. And, you know, when girlfriends will say, oh, you know, I was out shopping with my mum or, you know, someone will say, oh, I did so and so with my mum. And then sometimes I feel like that makes me feel quite sad because mm, I think mm. oh, it's quite difficult because mm. I still have my mum mm. in lots of ways. And so mm. writing to her every week, I write to her, you know, just saying oh mum you know mm. I remember doing this when I was a teenager and I can't believe you weren't more cross with me that now mm. my kids are doing it and just conversations you would have with your mum mm. if she was around and able to chat so absolutely gosh how interesting that is really good good tip for anybody there and how is your mum's care home coping with the sort of coming out of all the restrictions I mean how are they dealing with that what are their sort of what was their strategy there yeah, I mean, my mum's care home were quite good. I mean, in some ways, it's in a relatively rural part of Scotland. Mm. So they're just south of Eyre, where her care home is. Mm. And yeah, they did a great job. They did, I think they tried to kind of get back to visiting as quickly as they could. And I think they handled that in a very fair way. So they did kind of visiting slots so that they didn't have mm. visitors all in the home at the same time. And they mm. allocated those very fairly and very well and they were very flexible around other things like birthdays and um you know kind mm, of emergency mm. visits because one of the issues for me and and we talked last time about the fact that I'm a kind of at distance yes. carer, even if I call myself that but obviously yes. being many miles away one of the issues for me is I can't always guarantee that I can book in mm. three weeks in advance to mm. get a slot to visit her because mm. there might be circumstances change I might be mm. up in Scotland with work and I just want mm. to nip in mm. And um, to be fair, my mum's home has been brilliant at facilitating that because they've had to stick to a routine to try and keep residents safe. And um, I have always been very grateful that I can phone them up and say, Mm. now the restrictions are over. Can I drop in? Mm. Um, And they've done well with that. But I think it's been tough. I mean, like a lot, I've been visiting quite a few care homes around England recently as well. Not only my mum's, but I think the pandemic really, really took it out of care home staff. I think a lot of them were exhausted however well supported they were and there's been quite a big turnover of staff in my mum's care home which was incredibly Mm. stable for staffing Mm. it was one of the things that we considered was how stable the staffing had been when Mm. we chose the home absolutely yeah I think lots of people who were nearing retirement have maybe decided to do that kind of post-covid have have just decided you know Mm. exhausted and so much to consider so yeah I think I think it has been difficult and you know my heart goes out to care home staff around the country and those that have battled through continuing with domiciliary provided you know care support because I think it has been an incredibly tough few years losing care home residents in the numbers that have been lost across the country I think has been so hard terribly hard on on staff who do, you know, often think of these people as their own loved ones and care for them like they're their own family members and then losing kind of five, six, seven residents, you know, a month from a home is is huge and mm. been very painful. Mm. Mm. And not much of a break really before things like cost of living crisis has hit people as well. So it feels like it's been a rough on time. It has indeed. And I know just sort of moving slightly on to your chief executive role and the sort of 
policy priorities you have really, one of the things that you are calling for very loudly now, quite apart from the pay, which is absolutely shocking. And I saw, I was really saddened to see that it is still only about £9.50 an hour, which is unbelievable, actually. And you're calling for not only, you know, pay to be made better, but a career progression, which I think is so important. And of course, mandatory dementia training where where it's required. And actually, dementia expert Professor Shubha Banerjee said to me, you know, the percentage of those with dementia in care homes is probably more like 90%. You know, it's a very, very high level. So we're really talking about such a high proportion of the care home residents. Yeah, just tell us about that. Just while we're on the subject of care homes, I think it might be useful to slot it in now. Yeah, I mean, it isn't only care homes. It is the whole care system. So, I mean, I think there's a few different things there for me, Pippa. I think the Mm. first is about the pay reward and recognition needs to be enough to attract people in to this profession and to get people seeing it as a profession. And that's not only, you Mm. know, amazing dedicated staff who choose not to work in Tesco's for more money, but Mm. choose to, Mm. you know, look after Mm. our loved ones with care and compassion in a really, really difficult job and often a really taxing environment. Mm. And we need to encourage people into that profession and yes there's people who we need to go in as care workers but there's also nurses mm. who we need to attract into our nursing care you know we need specialist dementia nursing brilliant admiral nurses mm. just to kind of shout out to our fabulous partner in dementia uk mm. we just got to attract people into this whole dementia sector you know nobody comes into our area of work any of our areas of work to become millionaires but the pay needs to be enough to be able to afford to live quite you know no one's going to ever buy their yacht on no. the pay of working in social care but actually it should be that people can actually live and be paid a fair wage for often difficult and complex job i think we wrongly and i pull anybody up that says it think of care workers being unskilled and it absolutely isn't it's a really highly skilled role and my example i said earlier about you know understanding if you're working with someone for 30 45 minutes that's non-communicable and you're trying to work out why are they clearly in pain have they got a stomach ache is it, is it something more joint based like what's going on with this person how do i respond to this you know do i just give them some paracetamol or is it worse than that do i need to get a doctor am i trying to you know that is quite quite complex work and that is the work of a care worker mm, mm. because they are the front line of being there after fabulous family members and mm, support mm. They're the next line of defense and support. So, you know, thinking about training people in dementia techniques, good dementia techniques are good techniques for anybody in care. Yes. So, yes. you know, thinking how do you calm someone down? How do you understand what might be triggering a certain sort of behavior? I was talking to in a care home, a brilliant care home that I went to in Tunbridge Wells recently, where they were saying that they had a lady who continually kept taking her clothes off and they just mm. couldn't work out what was going on until. Mm a family member came to visit and they said it to her and they said, oh, it's because she's a seamstress. Mm, and if mm. she's got a thread showing mm. on any of her clothes, she'll think her clothes are ripped. She's taking them off to repair them. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, right, okay. You know, so having those skills in being able to understand and interpret complex behaviours, mm. you know, that's all part of the training. Mm. You know, thinking through how to deliver really good quality care. We should train people how to do this. They want to do an amazing job. They want to care for people properly and we don't skill them up to be able to do that. No, no. And also there isn't a good career progression, is there, within it? People often say to me... There isn't a good career progression. And also one of the things that I see happening in social care that worries me slightly is that anybody that's willing gets overpromoted without the necessarily being given the skills and the support to be promoted into those levels. Mm. And then people inevitably get set up to fail. Yeah. So I met a brilliant young man, a domiciliary care worker, actually. Mm. Great, great young guy in his early 20s kind of starting out on his profession and I met up with him about 18 months later he lives very local to me and Mm. I was asking about it and he was saying you know he'd worked really hard he'd really enjoyed the work then he'd been promoted and then he'd been promoted again and then he just couldn't cope Mm -hmm. you know he he couldn't cope he didn't have the line management skills there was no one around to help him with the line management he didn't really understand what he was taking on they just said well you'll have to do it because there's no one else and you're really good 
And he said eventually, you know, he just started to get really terrible anxiety. He was worrying that he was letting his people down, he was supporting, and he decided to leave the profession. And so, you know, that also worries me that when we've not got enough people in the system and we can't support people in the system, even where we've got really willing, you know, great people, we need proper retention strategies. So career development that's properly supported. Mm Absolutely. And also when I was talking to George Coxon, who's a care home owner, I don't know if you know George, but he has two very good yeah, care homes. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying that often as well, if you do get a very good carer, they tend to cross over to the NHS. They go that way. It's very unusual because he was unusual in that he came the other way round. He started in the NHS and went into care. And his very good point is that if you are creative and you want to think outside the box a bit, that can be quite restrictive within the NHS. And he said, but, you know, if you have got that creative street, for goodness sake, go into social care because actually, you know, there's so much you can do with an imaginative mind, and which I thought was interesting. But, yes, he said he met a very good young male carer and he went into NHS from social care, you know. But I absolutely agree. I mean, that's my um, mantra about the whole voluntary sector, actually, which is that it's, you know, we have amazing statutory services in this country, but actually the voluntary sector is incredible. If you want to innovate, if you want more mm. flexibility, if you want to try things, if you want to push the boundaries, actually it's often far easier to do that from being within the voluntary sector, which is, you know, well, the reason that I, I'm so passionate about it. Mm, mm. And tell me then, that leads on quite nicely to one of the things, as I mentioned in the intro, that was uh, one of the very few sort of silver linings of the whole COVID situation was this fact that uh, you said that by absolute force, pushed against the wall, you did find there was more innovation and things, actually these intractable problems that were put in the two hard box suddenly, oh, do you know, were solved in some form or other. And, you know, people were uh, up for more in that sense. And it became more collaborative, you said, between charities. So tell me about that. And has that, as I said in my intro, I mean, has that actually happened or has it faltered or have you built on that? So at that time, Alzheimer's Society kind of, well, as you know, we, we've gone through a pretty big transformational change over the last two years. I think that's why you got your award, isn't it, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> it was for the oh, cultural. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just have a very lovely team who might like making a fuss, and I'm very embarrassed about it all. But <laughs> well, just say, just enjoy it. It's because they're amazing. It's all teamwork. Um, but yeah, uh, we've gone through pretty big transformational change. And one of the mm. things that we did right from the start was build kind of what we call better together into our organizational values. So saying mm. actually right from our very core values of Alzheimer's society. We believe that, you know, we've got to come together as partners. We've Mm. got to come together with people living with dementia. We've got to come together with carers. We've got to come together with healthcare professionals to try and crack some of the big, what have been, you know, non-retractable problems within dementia that's just gone on for so long. And we've got loads and loads of really good partnership working coming along at the moment, which has been great. We've had some really interesting innovations in some of our areas like Mm. research, where Mm. we've launched the Longitude Prize, which has been a great collaboration, which is this kind of giant prize. I keep calling it the giant Easter egg hunt which I get in trouble about. We're making a huge prize available for and and some support funds for people who want to look at what the technological solutions could be to making life more manageable for people with dementia. Mm, absolutely. And so this is research money that's not necessarily focused on finding a cure or, or mm, a treatment, mm, but mm. actually looking at ways of helping people using technology to just make day-to-day living more possible which is just very exciting for us and that's with a whole new range of partners that we haven't worked with before we've been doing lots of work with the new integrated care boards across the UK I mean a big challenge in looking at our service delivery so we've launched a new strategy called help and hope and we've been talking a lot on our help side about how do we get our services out to more people? How do we get Alzheimer's Society support out to more people? Mm. But also how do we particularly push our services into communities or support communities that would traditionally not access dementia support for all sorts of different reasons? So looking at that health inequality agenda, looking at those barriers to seeking support and really looking at how do we work through partners, through other organisations. We've been doing some work 
in the West Midlands with an amazing Punjabi community organization mm. to do some fantastic work around getting a diagnosis within the Punjabi community. It's more stigmatized within that culture. Yeah, much more stigmatized within that culture. And, you know, lots of issues often within the family, not wanting to acknowledge dementia, mm. a lack of understanding about what dementia is. Mm. And across the general population, still a huge amount of confusion that dementia is just an inevitable part of getting old rather than seeing it as a disease. Yes, I like your phrase. I'm not going to be able to put my fingers on it right now. But, oh, it's not get, called getting old, it's called getting ill. Getting ill, yeah. Mm. And that, um, we've been really running with that all year and we've mm. had such an interesting take-up of people contacting us. Certainly when we did the Mantra Action Week in May, we had a huge take-up of people coming forward saying... Actually, I think there is something wrong with me that's not just about getting old. Did you? Well, in Dementia Action Week? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, during the Dementia Action Week and through the rest of May. And subsequently, um, we've been doing quite a lot of work with the FA through our FA Football Partnership. Yes, yes. No, that's interesting, Promoting the messages again mm. around, you know, it's not getting old, it's getting ill. Mm. And you I'm need glad to get the FA is GP. now doing some positive things around that because I interviewed uh, John Stiles, Nobby Stiles' son, and I was quite shocked yeah. by some of the stuff that came out around, you know, football and even today, the recognition of the yeah. injuries. But they are now, I think, really stepping up to the plate, aren't they, a bit more, the FA? Yeah, absolutely. And I think working with us kind of separately, football's a really, really interesting sport mm. in the demographic of people it reaches. Mm, so, mm. I mean, it's like nothing else for being mm. able to reach into a huge range of different communities, mm. different kind of wealth brackets different ethnicities mm. you know different educational ability it, know, it crosses it's all boundaries such it? a massive it does so our FA partnership has been incredible because they've allowed us to put messages for example in brochures mm. in in mm. England matches brochures they've helped us run adverts on tv through England matches mm. just with this message about if you've got any doubt go and get a diagnosis mm. Have you got figures about how many more people have come forward than earlier or how, how are you quantifying it, measuring it? Well, we've had quite a big take-up of inquiries. So our helpline at one point in May was up 700%. Frankies <laughs> to our helpline. Okay. Yeah, we had a huge surge and we had a huge surge around um, some of the England matches as well where we've run some of our advertising as well, just about getting people to contact us or go straight yes. to their GP. Brilliant. And we launched things which has been really good. Like we launched the GP checklist, which is now been endorsed by the Royal College of GPs, which isn't a diagnosis tool, but it's for a family or an individual to a kind of template that they can answer some questions and gather some evidence around some key things for a week or two before they yeah. go to the GP. Mm. So they can take that with them so that when they're talking to the GP, they can give some specific examples. But it's really important to do that because if you're someone who's struggling with your memory and then the GP says, well, how often do you think you're forgetting yeah, these things? Yeah, you have no idea. It's like, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so some of those sorts, we've had a huge uptake on that as well, which has been fantastic. Thousands and thousands of people downloading that tool. So, you know, that's our big driver. So we've got kind of a couple of big drivers for the next few years from Alzheimer's Society. The two big drivers are really extending our reach, getting the proper support out in the terms of our kind of help and support hours, but getting people to get help and particularly reaching in, thinking about that health inequality agenda and how do we get into those communities that wouldn't traditionally access dementia help and support. So a real focus on that. And there are things around ethnicity in there, but also other groups like working with gypsy and traveler communities, working with prison communities, lots of people who just don't have access to dementia support. And we want to really look over the next few years at how we do more with some of those communities. Yes. And the other big area for us then is around diagnosis and, and that's every aspect of diagnosis. That's what I was just about to say, in fact, because I know that you're very keen on, you know, people to get a an earlier diagnosis because it's still for all sorts of reasons actually, a lot of which you've articulated there, but just the stigma as well and the denial and no matter what culture you're yeah. from, really. I mean, I know it's still very prevalent more prevalent than one thinks but just say I think it would be interesting to people to hear I was asking Shubhi Banerjee again about this you know why it is good to get an earlier diagnosis I mean people are frightened understandably but 
why, with your experience really, you know, personally as well as professionally, why once you do know how this can be so helpful, for a start there's what you were talking about with the Longitude Prize, you know, this AI could be used perhaps, but all the ways that once you know what you're dealing with, you might be able to put things in place. Just just you talk about it. Yeah, there's so many things that become important. So we did some research a couple of months ago looking at diagnosis and 91% of people that we interviewed said that they felt better for getting a diagnosis. Mm. And we know that one of the reasons lots of people are put off, but particularly we know seven out of 10 GPs are reluctant to give a dementia diagnosis. Seven is out of 10? They, yeah, because they, they say that there's nothing that's to be done. So, you know, you tell the family site in front of you that this is probably dementia, but there's no point in referring them anywhere else because it just builds the family's hope that there's something that can be done. And because there's not a medical intervention, so there's mm, not necessarily, mm, there mm. are some treatments, mm, mm. but um, that, you know, there isn't a magic pill for a cure that actually yeah. GPs say, how helpful is it telling this family? It just builds their expectations. There's something I can do and I can't. So Gosh, we want to overcome that because it is shocking for lots of reasons. Yeah. People feel better if they get a diagnosis because first of all, many people say, you know that, there's something wrong and there is actually something wrong that Mm. you can deal with something Mm. more than getting a diagnosis of dementia. I think it's important to find out what's causing your dementia. Mm. So is that vascular dementia? Is that Alzheimer's? Is it a mix? Mm. Because, you know, remembering that 130 different diseases called dementia, Mm. knowing Mm. which one is causing yours helps Mm. you understand what's going to happen. Are you going to decline slowly? I mean, my mum has declined very, very slowly. It is. I was thinking that when I, yes, I'd very long forgotten period. how long, 18 years is a long time to have it. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas other people, you know, will decline very, mm. very quickly. Mm. Um, Alzheimer's, it is a slow continual mm. decline. Vascular, it's often a long period with no decline and then a big step it's change. It's stepped, yes. Yeah. And so actually understanding what's causing your dementia can help you understand how you are maybe going to change and help you prepare for that. We know that people, once they get a diagnosis, are more likely to seek support because they know to come to Alzheimer's Society or to get dementia help because you know dementia is what you've got and mm. you're not embarrassed to get help once somebody says to you, no, 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 you're totally legitimate. You know, you've got dementia. You can go to somewhere like Alzheimer's Society, speak to them, get help and support because you know what's wrong. And just planning, planning for the future. Mm, mm. We can help people see the positive messages. You mm. know, we so often get covered on your podcast, mm, Pippa. You know, mm. there's still good times to be Absolutely. had. You can still mm-hmm. continue making memories. I was just going to say, so I didn't really want to interrupt you at all, but yeah. I was fascinated and horrified about this 7 out of 10 GP still being reluctant to give a diagnosis because I interviewed Chris Maddox, who I know you know because she's just become a trustee on your board, which is absolutely brilliant because you've got a person with dementia now on the board of the Alzheimer's Society, which was a bit rude about at the time actually being me because I sort of said, well, it's about blooming time. But anyway, I was so pleased to have Kate. It was. (laughs) (laughs) That's very fair. I take that on the chin, Pepper. I thought I'd give a preemptive strike there because we didn't edit it out. It sounds a bit rude when it comes out. It Um, was very fair. (laughs) Anyway, um, Chris was saying, I was asking her what would really help. And I'm thinking in terms of this diagnosis and why, yes, so many people, we were talking about that, so many people who get diagnosed, it's a huge relief, but also they can go into, as, as Chris did, for a while, of course, she then turned herself around as so often did, but she went into a sort of slough of despondent depression. And she said, yeah. yes, but it's because of the way it's delivered. And that's sort of bound up in the fact that seven out of 10 GPs are reluctant to give it because she said, it was given to me like, well, this is what you got. And now go off and get your affairs in order. That's it. Nothing to do. She said, yeah. if only they'd given me just a glimmer of hope. Just a glimmer. It's true, and we, we're designing some services at the moment. I know it's something you and I have touched on before, but um, we've got a great team in Essex. We've got three gentlemen there, all living with a diagnosis, who we have supported to set up a peer support service. So if yes. you're diagnosed in their part of Essex, you will be asked if you'd like to be contacted by someone already with a dementia oh, diagnosis. Oh, that's brilliant, Kate. I didn't know about that, but I've been banging on about this for ages. Oh, yeah, but what's quite exciting about the trial and the way that we've done it is it's been set up and is being run by people with dementia supported by us, not yes. run by us supported by people with dementia. Uh-huh. And I think that's quite exciting and that's very much more the way that I want to kind of take the organisation going forward. Fabulous. That's so good these to hear. three brilliant gentlemen 
came and spoke to our board a couple of weeks ago about their service. So you just get connected up and that can be a longer term relationship or it can just be a one off conversation, but Mm. very much focusing on the positives of Mm. what you can do, what help and support you can get, just getting you to think through about things like a benefits assessment, telling you about Mm. the things not to worry about, actually. You know, lots and lots of fear. One of our things our research showed was how many people don't get a dementia diagnosis because they think they'll be stopped from driving straight away. Yes. And, you know, just some dementias, that isn't going to need to be the case. It will be over time, but it doesn't need to be initially, you know. So there's all sorts of different things that we can kind of share with people positively. There's another big um, driver for me, which I think is also incredibly important about getting this diagnosis piece right. And actually, it's kind of quite exciting, but daunting. We have got treatments for dementia coming online, mm-hmm. which you know is just incredible. So lecanemab, um, which we will find out about the kind of research findings in just a couple of weeks time, actually, in San Francisco, but is really got some very positive, very well grounded showing about a 27% slowing down of the disease progression And for the first time ever, the slowing down of the disease progression in the brain being matched to a slowing down of the dementia symptoms. So Mm, even though it's been seen, the brain's not declining, but actually people's symptoms seem to be still getting worse. Lecanemab is the first drug that shows that actually these two things are correlated. Really, really exciting. But you're going to have to get it into people early. What's the point of being able to slow the progression of a disease down unless you can get it into people really, really early before those symptoms start coming along? That's what's going to give people 10, 15, 20 years more, you know, healthy, productive lives. So if we don't crack dementia, if we don't work out, you know, Alzheimer's Society putting a lot of work into looking for this simple blood test that GPs could do that would... Um, show the proteins in the brain linked to Alzheimer's so that you Mm. could get a really quick, accurate diagnosis Mm. so that we can start to think about as these new drugs come online, how do we get people coming forward for a diagnosis? And if people don't, you know, those drugs just aren't going to work. If we've still got people waiting two years between having the first signs of Mm, mm. memory loss or falling over or you know some of the more common symptoms but waiting two years before they go to their GP with concerns that's two years we Mm. could have lost in getting into some of these new drugs into people so the whole Mm. of Alzheimer's society now absolutely focused on the dementia diagnosis journey from Mm. GPs to understand the importance Mm. of a diagnosis how do we get people mm. from the memory assessment clinics like Chris into really high quality support? How do we stop those communities that may have a fear or a, a real barrier to coming forward for a diagnosis? How do we manage all that? Getting people coming forward early, you know, planning for the future. It's just such a big trigger mm-hmm. for people having a better more productive life, reducing their dementia crisis, keeping control of their dementia journey. Mm. So yeah, big, big focus for us. Mm. Good. Well, that's all very, that, that's good news. And what a huge incentive for people to know that there is some hope as well medically, a little bit of hope perhaps there, yeah. which I haven't been for so long. I was talking to a dementia researcher recently and it was really interesting that I said, what's the biggest barrier to kind of getting some really high quality results from dementia research? And she said, um, it's lack of people to come in clinical trials that are still at the very, very, very early stages of dementia symptoms. She said, I I Mm. didn't rustle up 10 or 15 people recently that I wanted to trial because people come forward with their symptoms too late. And I'm I'm trying to prove something that needs that very, very early stage symptomatic diagnosis. I'm trying to prove that a, a drug I think could be repurposed to help at this stage. But she was like, nobody comes mm. forward early enough. So I can't do my research. I can't mm. prove this would work. And so again, you know, for us, the absolute priority of getting that diagnosis right. Yes, because if you came forward earlier, I can imagine why that is, because you're in such shock, probably you haven't got headspace for thinking I'm also going to go go into research because later on people I think are pretty keen to go into research aren't they because it gives them a purpose which is very important yeah yeah, and people talk about grief when they come out of research yeah you know they talk about really feeling the loss of that sense of purpose but I guess if you come for your diagnosis earlier you've then got time everything's just that much further forward isn't it so you could still then have your time to get over it you know come to terms with it assimilate it and then think well actually I want to go into research 
yeah, you know, the start of that process is people realizing quite early on that what those symptoms are could be, aren't saying they definitely are, but could be related to a form of dementia. And we need healthcare professionals to think about that early as well. You know, we've still got a lot of confusion between menopause symptoms and early onset. You know, there's still a huge amount of confusion between depression and early onset. You know, we need more research and more clarity because unless we can really start drawing out those ways of diagnosing early that this is dementia, we'll just never get those drugs into people early enough to make a tangible difference to their lives. So there's a huge amount to be done. But feeling very optimistic, certainly with looking at some of the drugs that are coming down the line and Mm. that are in development, there's some really exciting things literally kind of in the pipeline now, which is is probably in a more positive place than we've been for the last 15 or 20 years. That's lovely to hear. And another thing that struck me, so I'm changing the subject a bit here, but it was again something that I just thought was, was good to see actually. And um, as I think you probably know, you may not be aware, but I'm very keen on um, music and the power of music for people with dementia. And so I've loved the Our Dementia Choir and I love Vicky McClure's passion anyway. And of course, she's got a personal experience of dementia herself with her grandma, which I think is why she's such a good presenter of the, the choir. And I know she's done a video, hasn't she? I'm now back slightly more to policy issues, but this whole thing about the threat of the government sort of not putting into place the social care cap, which is one part of these massive social care reforms that we need. Um, And again, that's very personal to me because the catastrophic care costs for the individual that that cap would prevent, it happened as a double whammy for both my parents. Both my parents were in that catastrophic range of spending and they didn't have much money, so God knows how they did it. I mean, I, I clawed some back they spent over £100,000 each on their care. Yeah. Because, you know, because dementia is such an iniquity there, that it's social care, so you do pay. It's not free at the point of delivery, like NHS. So tell me some more about your, you know, your drive there. Your Because I was so pleased to see that you're coming out very powerfully there with that video of Vicky just saying, well, you politicians cannot row back on this because it could be you, could be you. And she goes through, doesn't she? Yeah. It could be them not addressing the House of Commons chamber or the Today programme, but actually addressing the social yeah. care manager. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's really important. I mean, we know that dementia diagnosis in the UK is up to about 900,000. It's probably going to go over a million by the kind of, you know, late... 2020s yeah quite quickly it could be any of us it doesn't discriminate so it could absolutely be any of us in that situation and you know you and I have both found ourselves there and I think for what is a huge if arguably the largest healthcare crisis of our time in this explosion of dementia rates it is still incredibly low priority for government we were Mm. you know promised a 10-year dementia strategy back in May it didn't manifest we've had a change of secretary of states we've been constantly told oh well you know let's just get things back on track with government and then we will address it but you know that doesn't help the people that are living no you know a dementia in some sort of health and social care dementia hell at the moment my associate director for policy a wonderful guy mm. called mark mcdonald calls it the existential dementia yeah. faff which is just get on and do something show some leadership you know we've had been told oh, this Secretary of State doesn't like disease-specific planning. This Secretary of State doesn't like that. You know, well, they're only going to be there two weeks anyway, aren't they? So, I know, get on, just get on and do something because mm. we have people that are mm. struggling now. So, I mean, our ask for social care is threefold. And I think we need the cost, absolutely. It needs to be affordable or free at the point of use but certainly affordable and certainly capped and a fair system so that's the first thing we need really good access to social care because the other thing is accessing social care is really really complicated it's really hard and most people with a cognitive impairment can't access the system without support so if you they just it's just impossible if you've tried to fill it's those impossible for forms I find it impossible it's kafka-esque it is. It is. I consider myself to have quite a high level of education and I have wept over the circular it's, it's ridiculous. Some of these forms. And I think I'm, I'm cynical enough to think that part of it is actually done to bamboozle you. 
yeah, put you off filling them mm. in. And, um, you know, so if you are someone without adult children or you are trying to, you know, live unsupported with your dementia, the likelihood of you being able to access social care is incredibly low because of how complex it is. So there's a big thing for us there about access to the system um, and fairness of access. But also the third one we've touched on already, which is about then the quality of what you get. Yeah, yeah. So it's no good at being cheap or free and then being such poor quality, it doesn't achieve anything. So it needs to be really thinking about that personalization agenda. How do you get really good quality personalized care that is kind of affordable and workable, but that actually works for the families that are receiving it? Because we know that that's just proving impossible. I was speaking to someone again last week who has unfortunately ended up in a position and she'd phoned our helpline because she's being disciplined by her work for being late to work regularly. And yet um, the carers don't turn up for her mother. Mm, mm, mm. So she's stuffed. <laughs> yeah, four times in four weeks, the carers just didn't turn up. Mm. And so she'd had to then you know, go in the morning and get her mum out of bed and get her washed and dressed and fed mm. and toilet it because the carers just phoned to say, I'm really sorry, but we haven't got anyone to go to your mum this morning. And she phoned our helpline saying, you know, do I have any protection on this? Mm. Because my employer is very keen, you know, saying that mm. they, you know, I'm not reliable enough. So those things, that quality issue, absolutely key. Because mm. I have heard of some employers who are now saying that they will be alert to and more generous about people having to take off carer time. Yeah, it's discretionary and increasingly, you know, we, we're working with some great employers who have got, you know, allowances for paid carer's time, have got an opportunity for people to register as a carer. Mm. We just did some great work with Santander who've got a carer's mm. network as we have at Alzheimer's Society where carers can actually come together and share about good ways of working and system change and have speakers in so I mean there's some amazing practice going on as well I just you know not mm. going to rest till it's everywhere no and are you finding that you are getting more of a foot in the door with government because when I read about you it seems that you are being listened to more that you do have more influence on policy is that true or is it not really or tell me uh, oh well we thought we were doing incredibly well <laughs> And then, um, yeah, the kind of implosion of the UK government, government. system hasn't mm -hmm. necessarily helped us. No. Yeah. So back in May, when the Secretary of State spoke at our national conference, mm. it was great. You know, he kind of said, look, we need a 10-year dementia strategy. Sorry, just remind me, because I'm getting up. so confused with these Secretaries of State. Who was that one then at that Sajid time? Sajid Javid. It was Sajid Javid, okay. Sajid, it's getting a bit yeah. confusing. So he spoke at our conference and he said, you know, we needed a 10-year strategy for dementia that leveled dementia up in its priority to cancer which was absolutely great. He pushed back on the strategy that was nearly ready to go and said it wasn't ambitious enough, which was, you know, mm. the only reason you would ever want a strategy to be delayed. And that was great. We also were hearing that there's going to be very positive things in the long-term NHS, long-term plan refresh about getting us back to recovering post-COVID diagnosis rates because diagnosis rates have obviously fallen quite significantly across the UK mm. and some greater commitments to dementia in the NHS long-term plan, which is very positive. And then obviously the health and social care, you know, the kind of transformational stuff coming online, the news about the cap. It just feels like, you know, over the last two or three months, the dementia strategy has pretty much disappeared again the long-term plan, I think there's a nervousness about committing to anything that may potentially cost mm. as part of that plan. Mm. So we've not got a clear plan from government on recovery of diagnosis rates at the moment. And then the same, we're hearing about both the financial cap maybe being suspended for a while mm. and, you know, a suspension of the NHS social care levy, mm. national insurance levy, yes. and just about the financial impacts of that because that was five and a half billion that was destined to eventually go into social care and we're not sure how that will be recovered so you know it just feels like you take one step forward and two steps back at the moment but yeah. we will continue to lobby we've got Helen Waitley coming back as the minister for mm, care I saw that yeah we worked with Helen during the pandemic period so she is well briefed on the challenges mm. around dementia uh, and she we know she knows her stuff on dementia and has always shown a, a keen interest in it so Hopefully we'll be able to start making some progress again. It's mm. frustrating. <laughs> it's very frustrating, isn't it, for you at the moment? Oh, the most frustrating part of, people, of my job. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Oh, we'll just keep battling, Kate. 
and I we think well, I know you will. Actually, I was going to say I don't think the Alzheimer's Society could have any better anyway. Sort of battling for them and being their champion, <laughs> getting out there and you know saying it as it is. I mean, you must always remain this uh, Yorkshire woman. We absolutely, I absolutely will. And I think um, you know what I've seen over the last couple of years, just combined with my own personal experience. You know, I feel more committed than ever that we can make a difference and we mm. can see things change. And there are positives, both drugs coming online and just some of the work we're doing around empowering people with dementia to kind of take their own voice and take their own power, mm. you know, to lobby and campaign themselves. It's just really exciting stuff. So there's lots of positives going on as well. And I think you need to keep an eye on those, otherwise you go mad. Yes, absolutely. Now, let's end on a, on a more positive note. That's a good idea. And there are some... I mean, I speak to a lot of people who, who have such good stories to tell. It's great for me. There is a lot of positive stuff around. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you again for chatting. Absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting to Kate Lee two years ago, and it was just as good this time. She is honest, down-to-earth, informed, determined and compassionate. Very good combination in my book. I loved the thought of her writing a weekly letter to her mum and spraying it with her own perfume. That one tip alone shows the power of sharing stories and experiences. Whether you're the CEO of the sector's biggest charity, or someone living with dementia, or whoever. And it's what this podcast is all about. I was genuinely shocked that 7 out of 10 GPs are still reluctant to give a dementia diagnosis because they think there is nothing that can be done. And yet there is so much other than medical intervention that can be done. For a start, we could offer peer support, such as the three men in Exeter, all living with dementia, who are there, ready and willing to talk to someone who has just been diagnosed and offer them some hope. The recent political turmoil hasn't helped push forward the dementia agenda, But I do sense from Kate that despite the governmental chaos of the past few weeks, there are reasons to be moderately cheerful. She and I are both lucky enough to encounter examples of excellent caregiving and inspirational individuals. I wish her the very best of luck in her role as Chief Executive, but also as a daughter. Keep writing those letters, Kate. You can find the Alzheimer's Society at www.alzheimers.org.uk and Dementia UK the charity that supports the specialist dementia nurses called Admiral Nurses, to which Kate referred, can be found at www.dementiauk.org. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.